Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Everyone and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Jonathan Strickland, host extraordinaire. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host extraordinaire-er. That's very true. And uh, and today we wanted to talk about the future. The future? Yeah. Uh, really, we're talking about a kind of a science fiction future. We're talking about the singularity. And uh, long-time listeners to Tech Stuff, and I'm talking about folks who listened way back before we ever talked out at 30 minutes, let alone an hour, may remember that we did an episode about how Ray Kurzweil works. And Ray Kurzweil is a futurist, and one of the things he talks about extensively, particularly if you corner him at a cocktail party, is the singularity. And so we wanted to talk about what the singularity is, what this idea, you know, we really wanted to kind of dig down into it and why is this a big deal and how realistic is this uh, vision of the future? Yeah, because some people would take a little bit of a, a, a would, would argue with your concept of it being science fiction. They take it extremely seriously. Oh, yeah. They say it's science fact. Science it's, fact. It's science inevitability. <laughs> the, uh, the, to- the term was actually coined by mathematician John von Neumann in the 1950s, um, but it was popularized by a science fiction writer. Yeah, Werner Vinge. Werner Vinge. Yeah. It's also a... Uh, uh, there are a lot of different concepts that are tied up together, and it all depends on upon whom you ask right. what it means by the singularity. For instance, there's some people who, when you hear the term the singularity, what they say is, okay, that's a time when we get to the point where technological advances are coming so quickly that it's impossible to have a meaningful conversation of what the state of technology is because it changes because that fast. Because it changes fast. by the millisecond. Right. So. so that's one version. But most of the versions that, that we're familiar with that the futurists talk about incorporate an idea of uh, superhuman intelligence or the intelligence explosion. Right, a kind of combination of um, of human and technological development that just dovetails into this gorgeous, you know, space baby from 2001 kind of. That's an excellent way of putting it. The mm-hmm. documentary 2001, uh, I remember specifically when the space baby looked at Earth. Okay, but that documentary example doesn't work at all. It usually does, but not this time. Yeah, not this time. Sorry, space babies are a poor example in, yeah. this, in this one instance. But but metaphorically speaking, yes, you're right on track. Because uh, the intelligence explosion, that was a term introduced by someone uh, known as Irving John Good, or if you want to go with his birth name, Isidore Jakob Gudak. I can see why he changed it. Yeah, uh, he uh, he actually worked for a while at Bletchley Park with another fellow who uh, who made sort of a name for himself in computer science, a fellow named Alan Turing. Oh, oh, I, I guess I've heard of him. Yeah, Turing will come up in the discussion a little bit later, but but for right now, uh, so Irving John Good, just just a little quick anecdote that I thought was amusing. So. Good was working with Turing to try and help uh, break German codes. I mean, that's what Bletchley Park was all about. Right, right. right? So uh, Good apparently one day uh, drew the ire of Turing when he decided to take a little cat nap because he was tired. <laughs> and he was. it was Good's philosophy that 
being tired did not mean that he meant that he was not going to work at his best. Right. So he might as well go ahead and nap. Exactly. Take a nap, get refreshed and then tackle the problem again. And you're more likely to solve it. Whereas Turing was very much a workhorse. Mm -hmm. You know, he was he was no rest, no rest. We have to do this. A-type. Let's do it. So Turing, when he discovered that Good had been napping, decided that uh, that this was uh, that Good was not so good. Um, And and Turing, Turing sort of treated him with disdain. Uh, He began to essentially not speak to Good. Good, meanwhile, began to think about the letters that were being used to in Enigma codes to code German messages. And he began to think, what if these letters are not completely random? What if the Germans are relying on some letters more frequently than others? And he began to look at frequency of these letters being used. He made up a table mm-hmm. and mathematically analyzed the frequency that le- certain letters were used and discovered that there was a bias. There was a pattern. Yeah. So he said, well, with this bias, that means that we can start to narrow down the possibilities of these codes. And in fact, he was able to demonstrate that this was a way to help break German codes. And Turing, when he saw Good's work, said, I could have sworn I tried that. <laughs> but uh, but clearly, uh, that showed that it worked well. And then Good, at another point, apparently went to sleep one day and uh, they'd been working on a code that they just could not break. And while he was sleeping, he dreamed that perhaps when the Germans were encoding this particular message, they used the letters in reverse of the way they were actually printed. And so he tried that when he woke up, and it turned out he was right. And so then his argument was, Turing, I need to go to bed. So, yeah, yeah. What the, the, the moral of the story here is that naps are good yes. and no one should talk to you. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's how I live my life. Uh, but yeah, so so Good's point anyway. He he came up with this term of the intelligence explosion, and it was this this sort of idea that we we're going to reach a point where we are increasing either our own intelligence or some sort of artificial intelligence so far beyond what we are currently capable of understanding that life as we know it will change completely and. Because it's going to go beyond what we know right now, there's no way to predict what our life will be like. Right. Because it's beyond our... our because it is, it is yeah, by, by definition, out of our comprehension. Yes. Uh, as the Scots would say, it's beyond our ken. Are, are we going to be doing accents this episode? No, that was a terrible one. <laughs> I, I, I actually regret doing it right now. I already knew I couldn't do Scottish, and yet there I went. Anyway. You're, you're trailblazing again. Yeah. So to to kind of backtrack a bit before we really get into the whole uh, singularity discussion, uh, that was just a, a brief overview. Uh, a good foundation to start from is the concept of Moore's Law. You know, originally Gordon Moore, who, uh, by the way, was a co-founder of a little company called Intel, uh, he, he originally uh, observed back in 1965 in a paper that I'm going to – I'm going to – with this, but it was called something like cramming more components onto integrated circuits, something like that. That was that was actually cramming was definitely one of the words used, um, and circuit probably was too. Anyway, he he noticed that over the course of uh, I think originally it was twelve months, but today we consider it two years. Yeah. Uh, the, Eight, Eighteen to twenty four months, I think, is the official unofficial. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that that the number of discrete components on a a square-inch silicon wafer would double due to improvements in manufacturing and efficiency. So that, uh, in effect, what this means 
to the layman is that our electronics and particularly our computers get twice as powerful every two years. So if you bought a computer in 1998 and then bought another computer in 2000, in theory, the computer in 2000 would be twice as powerful as the one from 1998. This is exponential growth. Right. Uh, that's an important component, this idea of exponential growth. Right. And uh, it goes without saying that if you continue on this path, if this if this continues indefinitely, then you know you quickly get to computers of almost unimaginable power just a decade out. Certainly, although I mean, I, I still don't really understand what a gigabyte means because <laughs> when when I first started using computers, we were not counting in that. I mean, I mean, I was still impressed by kilobytes at the time. So yeah, no, I remember the first time I got a uh, a hard drive. I think it had like a 250 megabyte hard drive and I thought You're like this. who needs that much space now granted that's that's space we're talking about not even processing power right, right. So, absolutely so yeah it's 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 one of those things where though the the older you are the more incredible today is right mm-hmm. because you start looking at computers and you think I remember when these things came out and they were essentially the equivalent of a of a really good desktop calculator right so uh but Moore's law states that this advance will continue indefinitely until we hit some sort of fundamental obstacle that we just cannot engineer our way around. Oh, right. You know, and people, that, that's why it's, it's kind of in contention right now because people are saying that, well, there's, there's only so much physical space that you can fit onto with, with silicone. There's, yeah. there's, there's a physical limitation to the material in which there's only so much you can do about it. And so does Moore's law still apply if we're talking about other materials and what's, you know. Right. And, and how small can you get before you start to run into quantum effects that are impossible to work around. Uh, and then do you change the geometry of a chip? Do you go three-dimensional instead of two-dimensional? Would yeah. that help? Yeah. And yeah, there are a lot of engineers are working on this. And frankly, pretty much every couple of years, someone says, all right, this is the year Moore's Law ends. It's this, going to end. That's it. It's over. It's gone. It's and then done with. five years later, you're it's, still going strong. Yeah. And then on the well, sixth year, someone else... Yeah. says Moore's Law is going to end. It's a little bit of a self-fulfilling proce- prophecy, I think, oh. that a lot of companies attempt to uh, keep it going. To keep it going. Oh, sure. Hard. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, no one wants to be the ones to say, uh, huh. guys, guess what? <laughs> we can't keep up with Moore's Law anymore. No one wants to do that. So it is yeah. a good motivator. Also, if I can footnote myself real quick, I'm pretty sure that I just pronounced silicon is silicone. And I would like I would like to state for the record that I know that those are two different substances. OK, that's fair. Anyway, I was I was going to ask you about it. But by the time uh, you were finished talking, I thought, uh, let's just go. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> it's all right. If you knew how many times I have used that particular pronunciation to, to hilarious results. Excellent. Uh, so moving on with this, this whole idea about Moore's Law, I mean, the reason this plays into the singularity is with the technological advances, you start to uh, be able to achieve pretty incredible things. And uh, uh, even within one generation of Moore's Law, which is kind of a meaningless term but let's say let's say you arbitrarily pick a date and mm-hmm. then 2 years from that date you look and see what's possible with the new technology and uh, getting to twice as much power however you want to define it doesn't necessarily mean that you've only doubled the amount of things you can do with that power you may oh, have limitless things you can do so uh, with that idea you're talking about uh being able to power through problems way faster than you did before. And there's lots of different ways of doing that. For example, 
um, grid computing. Grid computing is when you are linking computers together to work on a problem all at once. Now, this works really well with certain problems, parallel problems, we call them. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are problems where there are lots of potential solutions, and each computer essentially is working on one set of potential solutions. And that way you have all these different computers working on it at the same time. It reduces the overall time it takes to solve that parallel problem. Uh, and so, um, like, if you've ever heard of anything like folding at home or the SETI project mm-hmm. where you could dedicate your computer's idle time. So the pro- the idle processes, the processes that are not being used while you're surfing the web or writing how the singularity works or, I don't know, uh, uh, building a, a architectural program in, in, in some sort of CAD uh, <laughs> application, anything that you're not using can be dedicated to one of these projects. Same sort of idea in that uh, you don't necessarily have to build a supercomputer to solve complex problems if you use a whole bunch of computers. A whole bunch of small ones, yeah. right. Large Hadron Collider does this, although they use very nice advanced <laughs> computers, but they do a lot of grid computing as well. Sure. So, uh, so just using those kind of models, we see that we're able to do much more sophisticated things than we could Otherwise, if we were certainly, yes, networks, as it turns out, are pretty cool. Yeah, and networks play a part in this idea of the singularity. Um, Actually, I guess now is a good time. We'll we'll kind of transition into uh, Werner Vinge's, uh, and honestly, I don't know how to say his last name. I say Vinge, and it could end up being Vingy. um, I just went with what you said, so that's that's great. That's fine. Let's do it. Uh, We'll we'll say that Vinge says everything is silicone. Uh, (laughs) So Werner, though, he, he, Vern, I call him Vern, uh, he... He suggested four different potential pathways that humans could take, or really that the world could take, to arrive at the technological singularity. Okay. What are they? The four ways are uh, we could develop a superhuman artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So computers suddenly are able to think on a level that's analogous to the way humans think and can do it better than we can. But better, right. whether or not that means computers are conscious, that's debatable. We'll get into that, too. Uh, computer networks could somehow become self-aware. That's number two. Okay. So Skynet? Like the, yeah, Skynet. So sure. like, like the grid computing we were just talking about, that somehow using these grid computers, the network itself... Having enough cycles and enough pathways and enough loops back around, it starts going like, hey, I recognize this, yeah. and starts thinking about like, it. Like, like, like thinking about IBM's Watson, but it's distributed across a network. So computers, you could think of computers as all being super uh, powerful neurons in a brain, and that mm-hmm. the network is actually neural pathways. Okay. And it's definitely a science fiction-y way of looking at things. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Sure. Stranger things, my friends. It feels like a matrix kind of thing to me. Uh, (laughs) Then we have the idea that computer-human interfaces are so advanced and so intrinsically tied to who we are that humans themselves evolve beyond being human. We become transhuman. Okay. So this is an idea that... We almost merge with computers, at least on some level. Via kind of nanobot technology, you know, yeah. like stuff stuff running through our bloodstream, stuff or, in our neural our, cells. Yep. Or we have just brain interfaces where uh, our consciousness, yeah, yeah, our consciousness is connected to. So, so for example, we might have it where uh, instead of 
connecting to the internet via some device like a smartphone or a computer. Uh-huh. An that external is, device. Yeah, it's right there in our, our, our meat brains. So that, you know, you're sitting there having a conversation with someone, then you're like, oh wait, what movie was that guy in? Let me just look up IMDB in my brain. And then you, uh, you know, depending on how good your connection is. <laughs> Which means, by the way, if you are a journalist and you attend CES, you will automatically be dumber because all the, oh, no. all the internet connectivity will be taken up. And so you'll be sitting there trying to ask good questions and drool will come out of your mouth. Uh, which to me is a typical CES. I can, I can only assume that, that wireless technology would advance also at this point. But one can only hope. Fingers crossed. There are certain technologies that are not advancing at the exponential rate of Moore's law, which is another problem. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, and then the fourth and final method that Werner had suggested, uh, the world may go would be that humans would advance so far in biological sciences that they would allow us to engineer human intelligence so that we could make ourselves as smart as we wanted to be. This is sort of that Gattaca future where we've got all the another another great documentary where we we engineer ourselves to be super smart. Right. So those are the four pathways. Artificial intelligence, computer networks become self-aware, computer human interfaces become really really awesome or we have biologically engineered human intelligence. And uh, and all four of these lead to a similar outcome, which is this intelligence explosion. Mm-hmm. And this is the idea that some form of superhuman intelligence is created, either artificially or within ourselves, and that at that point, we will no longer be able to predict what our world will will be like, because by definition, we will have a superhuman intelligent entity Involved and and because that's superhuman, it's beyond our ability to to predict. Right. Which is, you know, which which makes thought experience uh, experiments about it a little bit uh, uh, philosophical. Yeah, that's the kind way of putting it. Uh, pointless would be another way of putting it. <laughs> like we could we could you know sit there and 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 spitball a whole bunch of possible futures. But that's the thing. They're possible. We don't know which one could come out. We don't even know if these four pathways are inevitable. Uh, we have futurists who truly believe that this is something that will happen at some point. There are other people who are uh, more skeptical. Um, but we'll talk about them in a bit. So uh, one of the outcomes that Werner was uh, talking about, uh, and, and it's, it's a fairly popular one in futurist circles, is the idea of the robo-apocalypse, essentially. <laughs> right, right. This is where you've got the humans are bad, destroy all humans mm-hmm. idea. Uh, uh, essentially, the, the idea is that humans would become extinct, either through definition because we've evolved into something else mm-hmm. or because whatever the superhuman intelligence is, it yeah. decides we are a problem. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of futurists are a lot more positive about that. They're, they're more looking forward to it than being scared of it. It's less of a, oh, no, big scary robots are coming to take over our society and more of a, robots are coming to take over our society. Yeah. Like, free day, yay! Yeah, exactly. Kind yeah, of. yeah, I don't have to work anymore. And and I don't, because robots are, are supplying all the things we need, there's no need for anyone to work anymore. There's no need for money anymore because right. the only reason you need money is so you can buy stuff. Yeah. But if everything's free, then you don't need you. So it becomes Star Trek and we all, you know. Run around in jumpsuits and. Right. Uh, punch people. And if you're Kirk, you make out a lot. I mean, a lot. That dude every week. Picard it's- and Riker, if you add them together, make one Kirk. In, yes, in this documentary series. Yeah. Star Trek. Yeah. 
I don't know about Archer because I never watched Enterprise. So you guys have to get back to me on that. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. That is also a gap in my personal understanding. Uh, I just took one look at that decontamination chamber and I said, yep, I'm out. Um, anyway, so that's that's Werner Venge. Uh, it's, he, he sort of popularized this idea, but he's – there are other people who have kind of – I think their names are synonymous with it. And we will talk about them in just a minute. But for now, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. And now back to the show. So Werner Venge, uh, again, very much associated with the idea of the singularity. But there's another name that comes up all the time, Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil. And uh, this is a fellow who has been referred to in various circles as, as the Thomas Edison of modern technology, mm. or, um, or or perhaps more colorfully, the Willy Wonka of technology. That was by Jeff Duncan of Digital Trends, and I just wanted to shout out because that was great. Nice. Um, but uh, You get nothing. <laughs> I shared a remix of Willy Wonka earlier today, and it's still playing through my head. We're, we're we're fans. We might be fans of the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka. We everyone, everyone, homework assignment. Go watch that. It has nothing to do with the singularity. The singularity at all. I don't know. There's some chocolate singularity in there. Chocolate singularity. I want to do That's an episode a on that. For a band. <laughs> if I were better at cover band names, I totally would have said something witty right there. Yeah. All right. Well, fair enough. <laughs> we'll say it's the Archies know, for sugar, sugar. Oh dear. Oh my goodness. Okay. So Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. Uh, Ray Kurzweil. Um, is is the kind of cat who, you know, when he was in high school, um, invented a computer program. And this is in the mid-1960s. This isn't like last year or something. In the yeah. mid-1960s, created a computer program that listened to classical music, found patterns in it, and then created new classical music based on that. So it was a computer that composed classical music. Yes. Following the rules of classical music that other composers had created. Yes. That's kind of cool. That's just that's just something he did, you know. And Yeah, that's it, the dude's got credentials. Yeah. It's he also kind of invented flatbed scanners. Um, wow. Cool. has done a whole bunch of stuff in um speech recognition yeah. and uh which that's interesting because uh we'll, and we'll talk about that in a second, but but one of Kurzweil's big points is that he thinks that by – and this all depends upon which uh, interview you read of Kurt, Kurzweil. But in various interviews, he said that essentially by 2030, we will reach a point where we will be able to make an artificial brain. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll have reverse engineered the brain and we'll be able to create an artificial one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of debate in in uh, in smarter circles than the ones I move in, uh, that's not a that's not a slap against my friends. They're pretty bright, but none of us are neuro- neurologically gifted of, at that point. Sure. Um, I include myself in that in that circle. So, uh, but there there are some very bright people who debate about this point whether or not we'll be able by the year twenty thirty to reverse engineer the brain and design an artificial one. And I think the debate is not so much on whether or not we'll have the technological power necessary to to uh, simulate a brain. Sure. I mean, we can simulate brains on a certain superficial level today. Well, I mean, hypothetically, we could connect enough computers that we could make it go, yeah. I, I, I think. Yeah, we could probably get the computer horsepower, especially by 2030, to, to simulate a human brain. The question is whether we will understand the human brain enough. Enough to do so. Exactly. Sure. So... Uh, that's that's sort of where the debate lies. It's not so much on the technological side of things as it is the biological side of things, which is kind of interesting. Um, 
I mean, I, I've read a lot of critics who who have really jumped on Kurzweil for this. Particularly, PZ Myers has written some pretty um, acerbic, yeah, strongly worded, mm-hmm. strongly worded criticisms to Kurzweil's theories, saying that uh, that Kurzweil simply does not understand neurological development and activities, and that you know the the nature between the environment and our, our the way our brains develop over time versus the you know nurture versus nature all of this stuff with mm-hmm. the hormonal changes the electrochemical reactions yeah, saying that there's there's so many little bits that make up our brains so many hormones so many processes and we understand such a small fraction of what they do this is why a lot of psychiatric drugs for example are kind of like oh well we invented this thing and we guess it does this thing right take it and see what happens right. we kind of stuff yeah we don't it it, it tends to make you happy uh, it also makes you perceive the color red as having the smell of oranges. Like, you know, that, that's, we don't, we don't understand it fully. And in fact, there are other people like Stephen Novella, who is, uh, he, he's the author of the Neurological Blog, and he also is a, a host on a wonderful podcast called Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. If you guys haven't listened to that, you should try that out. If you, especially if you like skepticism and critical thinking. Uh, but he's, he's a, a, a doctor. And um, a proponent of evidence-based medicine, and he talks about how uh, you know we don't know how much we don't know about the brain. Mm-hmm. Like we we have no way of knowing where the endpoint is as far as the brain is concerned, and therefore we cannot guess at how long it will take us to reverse engineer it, simply because we don't know where the finish line is. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Kurt, Kurtzwell's, uh, Kurtzwell has a new book, new as of, we're recording this in January 2013. It just came out in November of 2012, called um, How to Create a Mind, the Secret of Human Thought Revealed. And, and in the book, he theorizes that, um, okay, if you'll follow me for a second, atoms are tiny bits of data. Okay. DNA is a form of a program. The nervous system is a computer that coordinates bodily functions, and thought is kind of simultaneously a program and the data that that program contains. Gotcha. See, now this is another problem that uh, some scientists have. Yeah. Is is reducing the human brain to the model of a computer? Right, because it's you know it's it's a very it's a very elegant, interesting proposition. Sure. And and it's kind of sexy like that cuz you go like, "Oh, well that's that that sort of makes sense, man. Like let's go get a pizza and talk about this more." Yeah, kind let, of thing. Let, let me let me get a program that will allow me to suddenly know all kung fu. <laughs> right. Like and when the, you're a programmer, that's a great plan. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that sounds that sounds terrific, but, but yeah, there's um oh, one one specific uh, guy found uh Jaron Lanier wrote a terrific thing called One Half of a Manifesto, which is a really entertaining read if you guys like this kind of thing, wherein he was saying that what futurists are talking about when they talk about the the singularity is basically a religion. He was calling Mm. it cybernetic totalism, uh, you know, like like a fanatic ideology. He compares it to Marxism at some point. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And and he was saying that, that, you know, it's this this theory is a terrific theory. if you want to get into the philosophy of who we are and what we do and what technology is, but that, you know, cybernetic patterns aren't necessarily the best way to understand reality and that they're not necessarily the best model for how people work, for how culture works, for how intelligence works. And that saying so is a gross oversimplification. That's a good point. And uh, we should also point out that it all depends on how you define intelligence as well, because, 
Uh, Kurzweil himself has worded his own predictions in such a way that that some would argue, Novella argues, for example, that he has given himself enough room where he's going to be right no matter what. Like mm-hmm. saying that by 2030, we will be able to reverse engineer basic brain functions. And Novella says, well, sure. technically, you could argue that now. So <laughs> uh-huh. that kind of gives you a lot of room. A little bit of a gimme there. Yeah. yeah. But um, but whether or not it means total brain function, that's, that's a totally different question. And so uh, the other point uh, is that we could – theoretically create an artificial intelligence that does not necessarily reverse engineer the brain. It doesn't follow the human intelligence model. I mean, that's IBM's Watson. Mm -hmm. Again, a good example of artificial intelligence that, you know, it in some ways it mimics the brain because it kind of has to. You know, we're coming at this. Human beings are the ones creating this technology. Mm -hmm. And so as human beings creating this technology, it's going to follow the rules that as we understand them. So there's going to be some right. mimicry there. Right. But uh but IBM's Watson, you know, you think about that, it it doesn't really understand necessarily the data that's passing through it, it's looking for the connections and making right. judgments. It's really savvy at making at making connections and recognizing patterns and spitting out useful information. Yeah, it's it's looking for whatever answer is most likely the right one. Mm-hmm. It's all probability based, right? Sure. So, and if it doesn't reach a certain threshold, it doesn't provide the answer. Sure. So if let's arbitrarily speaking, I don't know what the threshold is, so I'm just making a number. Mm -hmm. 85%. Let's say it has to be 85% certain or higher for it to give that answer. If that, if the, if the certainty falls below that threshold, no answer is given. Uh, that's essentially how it worked when Watson was on Jeopardy. Right, right. It would, it would analyze the, 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 uh, the answer in Jeopardy terms (laughs) and then come up with what it thought was probably the most accurate question for that answer. And uh, occasionally it was wrong to mm-hmm. hilarious results. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it did sort of seem to kind of mimic the way humans think, at least on a superficial level. And, um, Oh, I mean, the thing about humans is that they're they're wrong a lot more than a lot more than what that fifteen percent of the time or something. Yeah, it's you know, it's we've we've got. Well, we give answers even if we're not eighty five percent sure of the question. <laughs> I certainly do, as we all know from going to trivia nights. Um, yeah, yeah, and and there's there's a lot of uh, I've read a lot on online about arguments of how our it's our deficiencies, our memory biases, our rational behavior, our weird ho- hormonal stuff going on or what make us human and that you can't teach a computer to be irrational. That's true. Uh you know, although you can teach it to swear. You can. We just we read a story uh, last week, yeah, where uh, where uh, IBM allowed Watson to read the Urban Dictionary and then I uh, Watson got a little bit of a potty mouth. It got it got kind of fresh. It yeah. did. It did. It started it started to say that uh oh see what was it? Oh, I'm going to say something and it's going to be bleeped out, right, Tyler? Mm-hmm. Tyler Tyler just said mhm. <laughs> so, uh uh, anyway, so there's one point where a researcher asked a question of Watson, and Watson included within the answer the word bull****. So uh, since that was bleeped out, you probably don't know what it was. So go look it up. It was funny. It was really funny. Uh, yes. And then and then they basically nuked that part of Watson from orbit. They yeah. were like, you know what? Never mind. It was the only way to be sure. They they wiped out the Urban Dictionary from Watson's memory. They also said that a very similar thing happened when they let Watson read Wikipedia. 
Oh, no. No judgments here. Just saying what what IBM said. Anyway, uh, again, the computer was unable to determine when when there when it what, was appropriate. You know, what's the appropriate context for dropping a, a swear word? Yeah, it didn't know. So it just started to speak kind of like my wife does. So, uh, yeah, it was um, I'm going to pay for that later. Uh, so anyway, that that. That's an interesting point, though. Again, you're, you're showing how machine intelligence and human intelligence are different because the, the machine intelligence doesn't have that context, right? Sure. And, and of course, you know, we're talking about, about science fiction or science future, however you want to term it, so that, you know, we might very well come up with a fancy little program script that lets you that lets you introduce that kind of bias. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. And, and but again, from that documentary Star Trek, I mean, Data never figured out those contractions. That's so. true. That's true. Uh, Turing uh, actually had a a great uh, m- mental exercise, really, and it's called the Turing test. And this this applies to artificial intelligence. Turing's point, and we've talked about the Turing test in previous episodes of Tech Stuff, but uh, just as a refresher, Turing had suggested that you could create a test, and that if a machine could pass that test uh, at the same level as a human, in other words. Uh, if you were unable to determine that the person who took that test was human or machine, the machine had passed the Turing test and had uh, had essentially simulated human intelligence. And uh, it usually works as an interview. So mm-hmm. you have someone who's who's conducting an interview, and you have either a machine answering or a human answering. Mm-hmm. And there's a barrier up so that, of course, the person asking the questions cannot see who is responding. And of course, they're responding through you know text usually, because if they're responding through a voice. And it's like, I think the answer is four. You know, you'd be like, well, either it's a robot or the most boring person in the world. (laughs) Uh, The idea being you would ask these questions over a computer monitor, get text responses. And if you were unable to to answer with a certain degree of uh, accuracy, whether or not it was a machine or a person, then you would say the machine passed the the Turing Turing test. test. And uh, and and. You could argue, well, that could just mean that the machine's very good at mimicking human intelligence. It does not actually possess Possess. human intelligence. Mm -hmm. Turing's point is, does that matter? Because I know that I am intelligent. I speak with someone like Lauren, who I assume is also intelligent based upon the responses she gives, Mm -hmm. but she could just be simulating intelligence. However, I have, I have already bestowed in my mind the, uh, the, the, feature of intelligence upon Lauren because what she does is very much akin to what I do. So Turing said, if you extend the courtesy to your fellow human being that they are intelligent based on the fact that they act like you do, why would you not do the same thing for a machine? Does it matter if the machine can actually think? If the machine simulates thought well enough for it to pass as human, then you're giving it the same benefit of doubt as you would <laughs> anyone else you meet. Right, right. This is what a lot of science fiction movies are about, actually. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of philosophy in yeah, this. Yeah, a lot of philosophy, a lot of Isaac Asimov, a lot of Blade Runner. And 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 That's not an author, sorry. Well, no, but, you know, Philip K. Dick, look him up. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Thank you. do androids dream of electric sheep? I won't. I won't spoil it for you. Uh, they, uh, to kind of wrap this all up, getting back into the, the, the discussion of philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, we had very recently, we did a podcast about are we living in a computer simulation? Right, right. Uh, and that kind of plays into this idea of the singularity because that argument stated that if the singularity is in fact possible, 
if it's inevitable, if right. we are going to reach this level of transhumanism where we are no longer able to really predict what the present will be like because it will be beyond our understanding, then one thing we would expect to do is create simulations of our past to kind of study ourselves. Sure. Right? To, and to see what happens, play around with variables. Yeah. We and, like good experiments. Yeah. And we could, we could, if we're that advanced, we could, in theory, create such a realistic simulation that the inhabitants of that simulation would be incapable of knowing that they were artificial and would be completely, you know, Oblivious. self-aware of yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, that was totally redundant, self-aware, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but unable to know that they were a simulation. Uh, and he said that if those things are possible, then there's no way of knowing that, you know, the the overwhelming re, uh, uh, possibility is that we are, we are in, in a computer simulation. It's a computer simulation yeah. right now. Because, yeah, if that's, if that's what's going to happen, then there's no way of saying with certainty that we are not, in fact, the product of that. And so... Uh, the point being not necessarily that we are, in fact, living in a computer simulation, but that perhaps this singularity, this transhumanism thing, might not be realistic. Right. It might not be the future that we're headed to. Maybe it ends up being a pipe dream that's not really possible for us to attain. Or maybe we'll wipe ourselves out through some terrible war or catastrophic accident uh, Maybe we create a biological entity that wipes us out, a, a la the, uh, the stand. Right, right. Or we create a black hole at the LHC, which, come on, people, don't write me. I already know about that <laughs> and, and how tiny and, and, and almost non-existent they are because they last so quickly. It could totally right, happen. Let's say that yeah. they do that thing where you look at that one website where the black hole forms in the parking lot L- outside the LHC and you just see the whole picture go, <laughs> um, which – Funny video. Uh, anyway, that's that argument plays back into this. So I don't know. I don't know if we're going to ever see a future where the singularity becomes a thing. Oh, and we never really talked about it. But one of the big points that Kurzweil really punches in his uh, singularity talks is the idea of digital immortality. Right, right. And he's been obsessed with this. I, and, and obsessed is probably a judgmental word. I apologize. That's, uh, But he's been very focused on this concept. His, his father died when he was about 24. And he's been exploring theories on life extension ever since then. And, uh, and supposedly takes all kinds of supplements and sells them as well to extend life, has all kind of, kinds of health plans. Yeah, dietary uh, plans that he has, exercise, all this. The idea that, uh, the idea being that if he can preserve if he his can own only life. only last long enough that we hit the singularity, then he can become immortal. Right. And either that, you know, we att- attain immortality through one of a thousand different ways. For example, we end up uploading our own intelligence into the cloud. Right. And then we become part of a group consciousness. Mm-hmm. So we are no longer really individuals. Or we merge with computers in some other way so that we are technically immortal that way. Or we just conquer the genes that all uh, guide a- the aging process and we stop it. And we stop disease. You know, we, yeah. we take like in transmet, you just take a cancer pill and then you don't get cancer because that's what you do. Yeah. So again, the singularity, that's kind of why I think a lot of critics also point to it as being more of a religion because it's kind of this sort of u- utopian pipe dream uh, in yeah. their minds. There's uh, the former CEO of Lotus, uh, Mitch Kapoor, Kapper, I'm not sure how you say it, uh, once called uh, called it the intelligent design for the IQ 140 people. Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. 
Meanwhile, meanwhile, Kurtzweil's kind of uh, laughing all the way to the bank. I hear that a, a company that rhymes with Schmoogle hired him. Little little people. I mean, we're, you probably wouldn't have heard of him. Yeah. But yeah, they, they just hired him on to be, uh, I have it in my notes, the official title. I think it's the, the director of engineering. Yeah, a director of engineering over there. Yeah, um, they they get they get some big names. I mean, they had Vince Cerf as the uh, chief evangelist, and of course, he was one of the fathers of the internet. So uh, Google's Google's got a uh, they're known for for getting some really smart people. And yeah. and to be fair, while the singularity may or may not ever happen, uh, I think it's important that we have optimists in the field of technology who are really pushing for our development. To try and make the world a better place for people. Now, you know, oh, absolutely. So even if we're even if we never reach the point of digital immortality in our lifetimes or any other, it's. I mean, if if someone wants to think so big that that they want to put nanobots to make my body awesomer, I mean, and and not <laughs> that 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 came out that came out possibly crude. I mostly means that I don't get cancer and die. Um, kind of stuff. That's that's terrific. I can I can't argue with any part of that. Yeah, I'm going to be on video so much this year that I definitely need my body to be awesomer. <laughs> so I'm all for that. Well, either way, yes, and 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 Google, you know, Google looks forward so much to to augmented reality. Uh, augmented reality. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm I can't pronounce anything today. I am on a non roll. It's okay. Um, in the Internet of Things and all of that wonderful future tech that. It seems like a terrific fit. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how how it goes. I mean, obviously, the nice thing about this is that all we have to do is uh, live long enough to see it happen or not happen. And most predictions have the singularity hitting somewhere between 2030 and 2050. So we'll so, find out. Yeah, it all depends on upon which uh, futurist you're asking. And also, it's one of those kind of – I think it's one of those – rolling goalposts as well. <laughs> right. You know how, how certain technologies are always 20 years away or uh-huh. five years away or 10 years away? So we'll see. Maybe maybe by 2020 we'll be saying, all right, we've revised our figures. <laughs> by 2070, yeah. definitely. But uh, but who knows? We'll see. Uh, guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, well, here's what you can do. You can write us an email. And a lot of people have been asking about our email address. I do say that every episode. But in case you've missed it, listen carefully. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com. Send an email. I'll prove it by writing back. Uh, or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there at both of those is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again in the future. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 